excited to kind of dig into Genesis. And I think God sovereignly has put us in this passage for this exact moment. And so it's a joy for us to be able to dig in to Genesis 7 and 8 and kind of be able to unpack what God has for us. So um, I just want to just take a moment and I'm going to pray and then we're going to just go through the sermon, hang with us as long as you can, and uh, we'll see what happens. So Lord, we just thank you for your grace. I know that this is not ideal, speaking in front of a camera, sitting in living rooms, being separate from one another. But Lord, we ask now that you would honor your word, and that you would speak with clarity to us from it. Glorify your name as we hear from you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a crazy week, right? Wednesday, I think it was, um, the World Health Organization declared a pandemic, uh, moving it from an epidemic to a pandemic, which then launched uh, President Trump closing down our borders to Europe, uh, which then pushed schools, which then, you know, the NBA shuts down, all kinds of stuff is happening. And we just had a whirlwind of a week. And you add on top of that the, the stock market, you add on top of that the idea that the schools are now canceled, you add on top of that that we can't get toilet paper anywhere, and everybody is just stressed out. I feel it. I feel it in my heart. I feel stress from, uh, from our current situation. And we might stop and just ask the question and say, what does a Christian think in such times as this? What is our response as those who trust in Christ? Uh, how do we respond to moments like this? And it, it might seem weird because our, our passage today tells us exactly why God floods the earth because of human sinfulness. We saw this last week in Genesis 6 because the, the Every evil or every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. God's going to flood the earth. But we might not have that confidence here this morning. When we're talking about what, what led to COVID-19, it's not so cut and dry. We might find ourselves kind of jumping to a number of conclusions. We might say, God is judging this nation for sin. And, and we might have good biblical precedent to, precedent to do so. We, we look at passages like 2 Samuel 24, where uh, David sins and God brings a whole pestilence on the land, 70,000 people die. We might say, yeah, there it is. See, human sin leads to uh, sickness. And, and so uh, we can jump to that conclusion. But we recognize this morning that there's been sickness in righteous people throughout the scriptures. So we see that specifically uh, in Job, uh, the life of Job. Uh, Job chapters 1 and 2 describe the righteousness of God, uh, or the righteousness of Job, and yet he's has boils and sickness, and his wife is saying, curse God and die. And we might even see it in the life of Jesus himself. Jesus, who was fully righteous, yet dies a painful, horrible death, right? And we might also be tempted to jump and say, no, Satan is really in control of this disease. Satan is the one who's perpetrating this and bringing this about. And again, nothing happens without God's knowledge. Even uh, you know, Satan is described as the accuser of the brethren or the prince of the power of the air. But whatever we, whenever we see uh, the use of the word pestilence or sickness uh, in mass form throughout the scriptures, we always see God as the one who's behind it. We see that Deuteronomy 28 and Deuteronomy 31. We see it in 2 Samuel 24, like we mentioned. We see it in Revelation chapter 6, that God is the one who's bringing about pestilence. 
you know, it's, it's really hard for us to tell what God's intention might be in the midst of all of this. Uh, with that in mind, it's good for us to center on the character of God this morning. Uh, Charles Spurgeon writes this, and I have this ghetto way of doing PowerPoint this morning, right? I printed out all my slides. So uh, we're going to hold this up and see how things work. But this is Spurgeon's quote. He says this, God is too good to be unkind, and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So this morning, I want to draw us to trust God's heart this morning. I want us to, to move beyond the, the providence that we see from God's hand, and I want us to look beyond that and see what God has in his heart for his people. And I hope that we might God, find God to be faithful to his people. And as we find out what that faithfulness is and what it looks like, we might be able to face the hardships God may have in store for us. When we know of God's faithfulness, uh, we can do three, four, five, six weeks at home. When we know of God's faithfulness, uh, we can deal with the longer checkout lines. When we know of God's faithfulness, we can deal with all kinds of difficulty. So here's our big idea this morning. Our big idea, I'm going to pull up my second ghetto slide. The big idea is that God remembers his promises. God remembers his promises. We're going to specifically see this in three different ways. First, God instructs Noah and the flood begins. We're going to see that in chapter 7, verses 1 through 24. Uh, and then secondly, we're going to kind of really dig into this phrase that, that turns the chapter in chapter 8, verse 1. God remembers Noah. And then finally, the flood recedes, and God instructs Noah. We'll see that in chapter 8, verses 1 through 19. So let's get, dig in this morning. I know Facebook Live, I looked it up this morning. We can go six hours on this thing. I promise we won't go that long, maybe. Anyway, Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 24, God instructs Noah, and the flood begins. So God instructs Noah. Look at chapter 7 of the book of Genesis, in verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that God had commanded him. So we start off and we see that God is instructing Noah, right? We saw last week that God had been instructing Noah and he gave uh, Noah the sense, of, I'm going to destroy the earth. Here's how I'm going to do it. This is how you build the ark. This is all that's going to happen. And he kind of brings some clarity into all of that. So he tells him not just to bring one of each kind, male and female. He brings seven kinds of clean animals. And what's going to happen later next week is we're in Genesis 8. Uh, Noah's going to get off the ark and he's going to sacrifice. He's going to make sacrifices of all kinds of clean animals to the Lord. So God is making provision for that. And when we get to verses 5 and 10, we're not going to read those. We see that Noah does that all that God commanded him. We see this specifically, that phrase, all that God commanded him, in verses 5 and verse 9. It's kind of highlighting Noah's faithfulness to God's instruction. So then when we get to verse 11 through 16, we see that the flood is beginning. So look with me at chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month of the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. 
On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons uh, went with them and entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life and those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God commanded him and the Lord shut him in. And what happens is Noah's entering into the ark, as the text describes. And as they're entering into the ark, everything goes crazy, right? The deep bursts forth. The rain starts to open, or the, the windows of the heavens open, and it starts to rain. I mean, imagine you're walking along, and this geyser just pops up out of the ground, and all of a sudden, the rain is coming down, and you're entering into the ark. And what I love is in verse 16, God closes the ark behind them to kind of emphasize that Noah's not saving himself. God is coming alongside and so saving Noah and, and kind of bringing his grace to him. And so what happens in verses 17 through 24 is that the waters themselves increase. And this is where the passage gets interesting, right? This is where this passage just enters this fever pitch, where this uh, culmination of all of this judgment, all of the wrath is, is hitting its high point. So listen to verses 17 through 24. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. And listen to this phrase, the waters is, is going to constantly be used and is going to be described as they increase and prevail. So he says, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered, and the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. You can sense this kind of culmination of this passage is the, the words, the waters and prevailed and increased is constantly kind of hitting us. It's almost like raindrops themselves kind of pe pelting us, right? And so this, this uh, culmination of this text is going and what's happening is the waters increase and as they increase, they pick up the buoyancy of the ark. And then as the waters prevail, they keep coming and keep coming. They, they rise above the mountains, even 15 cubits above the mountains. And what happens is, as, as Moses describes, the culmination of all this is in verses 21 through 22. Moses describes that everything on the earth dies. Everything is wiped out. And these rainwaters prevail for 100 in 50 days. See, as we step back from this, we realize that, that God, the culmination of, of man's sin has so come up before God that God sends these waters to wipe out the earth, to just destroy everything. We recognize right now that we're in the midst of a really difficult time, but it's not quite like this, is it? It's not this place where God has brought judgment against human sinfulness in its fullness. In fact, that time will come sometime later. We still await that day when God would judge the earth. 
And so God instructs Noah, and the flood begins. And our second part happens here in chapter 8, verse 1, where this short little phrase is stated at the beginning of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah. Why is that important? Well, first of all, let's just establish the idea that it is important. See, really, what this is, is this is the center of this passage. This is the center of this text. I want to show this to you as we kind of... uh, with my really up-to-date PowerPoint system. This is uh, kind of as the text itself, I'm trying to get it centered, there we go. As the text itself lays out, we see that there's a period of seven days wait, and then there's another seven days wait in chapter seven, verse 10, and then there's 40 days of flood, 150 days of water, and then God remembers Noah. Well, coming back out of that then, we see everything else in reverse, right? We see all of this accounting of the days and in the center of all of that is, is Noah and God's faithfulness to Noah. And then uh, we see it differently here. If we were to kind of outline the passage, we see uh, God speaks in, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And then the flood begins, and then the flood rises in 17 through 24. And then God remembers Noah, and the flood recedes. The flood dries, and then God speaks again. See, this is a, a pattern that's, that God's really showing us that this is the culmination, this is the center of this passage, is that God is remembering his servant. It's the fulcrum of what God is kind of really bringing to us this morning in Genesis chapter 7 and in chapter 8. But what does this word or this term, remembered, really mean? Well, I wish I had some great insight to the actual word. The word just means remembered. But when we see its usage throughout the book of Genesis and even throughout the Old Testament, we really learn a lot about what God intends. See, uh, one of the commentators, Childs, he says this. He says, God remembering always implies his movement toward the object of his memory. So as God's remembering Noah, he's going to start acting. And we'll see that in the next section. But there's other places, specifically in Genesis and Exodus, where God is remembering and he's moving toward his people. Uh, we remember in, Ex- or in Genesis 30 where uh, Rachel's womb was uh, closed. She wasn't able to have children. And so uh, Jacob prays to God on her behalf. And what happens in Genesis 30, verse 22, is that God remembers Rachel and her, own, her womb is opened. And in excuse me, uh, in Genesis 19, verse 29, uh, God is saving Lot. He's bringing Lot out of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he does so because the text tells us that he remembered Abraham and then saved Lot. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 24, we see that God remembers his covenant with Abraham, and that's why he reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. See, God's remembering and he's acting. He's remembering his faithfulness to his covenant, his faithfulness to his people, and then he's moving in action toward his people. This is good for us to remember this morning is that God hasn't left us desolate. God hasn't left us alone. He's remembering us. He's remembering his promise to us. And we'll dig into that in just a second. But our third major emphasis here happens in chapter 8 as we kind of bring the denouement of the text, the the falling action of this story in chapter 8. See, what happens is the floodwaters recede and God instructs Noah in Genesis 8. And I'm going to summarize a lot of what's stated here. The floodwaters recede in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And so what God does is he sends this wind to blow over the waters. And so the waters start to recede. He shuts up the, the, the fountains of the deep, and he shuts the windows of the heavens. And, and all of a sudden, these waters begin to recede. 
And then in verses 6 through 12, we see that the earth is drying. And we all remember this story. This is that part where, where Moses sends out the raven. And then he sends out the dove, and the dove doesn't bring anything back. And then he sends out the dove again, and it brings the olive branch back. And we say, what in the world is that all about? What does this mean? Well, the raven will eat anything. Uh, specifically, they'll, they'll eat dead things. And so it, we might think that God or Noah is sending out the raven to see if God's done what he promised he would do. Has he really destroyed all these things? And sure enough, that raven doesn't return. He's found a, a buffet, all right? So... That was gross. Um, anyway, but then he sends out the, the, the dove, and first time it doesn't come back. There's, there's no land there. But the second time it brings back this olive leaf to show there is vegetation growing, there is land for us to land on, and sure enough, Noah finds that to be a sign of God's goodness and faithfulness. Again, God instructs Noah. Verses 13 through 19 of chapter 8, God brings instruction. I want to read this portion as we kind of find God's faithfulness in it. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month. Now, remember, God already gave us Noah's age last chapter. He said he was 600 years old. Well, now it's been almost a year's time since the flood began, and here Noah is. And then he says, and Noah, uh, excuse me, verse 13 uh, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, God's instructing Noah again, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. <laughs> See, when God instructed Noah, get in, now God's instructing Noah, get out. Right? He's telling him it's safe. It's safe for you to come out into the open. There's just a sense of grace and faithfulness from God, right? God has judged the earth, but now he's showing himself true and kind to Noah, his servant. So we step back and we say, God remembers Noah. God brings about his promise to Noah, and now we see God's goodness. It's a statement to us this morning, right, that God remembers his promise to his servants. God remembers his promise to his servants. God remembers Noah. We've already emphasized this a, a bit this morning, but why does God remember Noah? It's not a question for us to ask. Why does God consider Noah? Well, first of all, we saw last week that, that Noah found favor with God in Genesis chapter 6. We saw that uh, Noah lived in righteousness before. But one of the things we might miss is that the promises that God has given to us thus far in the book of Genesis mean that God is going to move toward Noah in faithfulness. Just remember the promise that God gave to Satan in Genesis 3. He promised that one of Eve's seeds would come and crush his head. Genesis 3.15, right? I'll put 
enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. There's a promise that's bound up there. And if Noah were to die along with the rest of humanity, God would be unfaithful to that promise. God spoke a promise through Lamech, Noah's dad, in Genesis 5.29. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this Noah, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So God would be unfaithful to Lamech. Finally, God promised Noah that he would make his covenant with him. Last week we saw in Genesis 6, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. God is showing himself faithful to his servant Noah, and he's also showing himself faithful to his word. It's interesting, isn't it, to contrast the life of Noah with the life of Jesus, right? The service or the salvation of Noah lives in stark contrast to the salvation of Jesus or the, the saving work of Jesus. See, while Noah experiences salvation from God while the rest of humanity dies, Jesus experiences death so that the world might experience salvation. Noah is kept safe in a boat fully provided for by the hand of God. Jesus is exposed to the withering wrath of God's fury. Noah is remembered by God, but Jesus is one who cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, this morning we recognize that God promises us the eventual relief of our suffering in his presence. But he can only offer us the relief of his presence because Jesus first endured the suffering that we deserved on the cross. That Jesus bore that wrath of God. He bore that same fury from his Father. Isaiah 53, 10 says that it was the will of the Father to crush him. We recognize that because God crushed his son, we are recipients of grace, but not recipients of the wrath that we deserved. So here's our assurance this morning. Jesus Christ pleads the product of his suffering before God's throne right now. How are we assured that God will remember us? How are we sure that God will remember his promises to us? Well, right now, before the throne of God the Father, Jesus is pleading the righteousness of his blood on your behalf, on my behalf, on behalf of all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. His constant advocacy before the throne is, is reminding God of the faithfulness of, that he has in his promises, that he's showing God the, the, the blood that he has spent on behalf of our sins so that we have this promise that we can cling to. See, here's the truth this morning, right? You and I can be assured that God remembers his promises to us, but do we remember God's promises to us? God surely will remember his promises, but do we bank upon those promises? It's easy for us amidst difficulty to forget God's promises, isn't it? I mean, when you're in a hard time, when you're in a hard season, it's easy for you to be forgetful about what God has promised himself to do. And what, yet we might also, uh, uh, excuse me, I'm lost in my notes here. When the proverbial waters rise, we need to remember that this is not the only part of God's character, that, that he's not only going to bring wrath against sin 
Right now, you sit in your living room because a disease threatens us. And, and you might be tempted to think, hey, we're getting our just desserts as a country. We're getting what we deserve. I'm getting what I deserve. Perhaps you're even thinking that. But this morning, we recognize that God's character is not one to only bring condemnation. That is part of his character. But it's also one who brings grace and mercy to his people. We need to, to stop and just understand what is the nature of God's promises toward us? God hasn't promised us perfect health. Stories in the New Testament where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, hey, take a little wine for your stomach. Right? You have a stomach problem, Timothy. You, you need to deal with that. And it's not this like uber faith-oriented thing for Paul and Timothy. He's just saying, you need some medicine. You need to deal with the difficulties of your health. We see Lazarus falls sick and actually dies due to illness, and that this is part of God's will and his plan. God hasn't promised us perfect health, and he hasn't promised us this victory in Christ over disease and death and dying. That's not yet. That's, that's something that's supposed to come down the line. But he hasn't promised us that we wouldn't die either. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that it's pointed to man uh, to, to live once and then die and then face judgment. That's part of bound up in this whole experience. That's not God's promises to us, that he's not promising us that we won't uh, face serious illness, that we won't face death. Uh, Christians get cancer. Christians get sickness. Christians eventually die. In fact, all Christians have died throughout the centuries. But what are the natures of God's promise? I want to take us to a passage this morning that's familiar to us. We, we take it all the time when we, when we talk about communion. It's in Matthew 26. And Jesus is, is there with his disciples. It's the final night before he's going to be betrayed, and he's taking communion. He's instituting this, this communion with his people. So listen to what he says in Matthew 26, verse 26. He says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So I want to just pull out three things that we can bank on, three promises of God in this trying time. God gives us a covenant. This is what he says. This, this passage institutes what we would call the new covenant. In verse 28, he says, this is my blood of the covenant. I'm making this promise to you, and I'm sealing it with my own blood. If you look back in the Old Testament, when, when Moses initiated the old covenant, the law, he sprinkled the people with blood from a lamp. Uh, to kind of seal the covenant. When, when God made a promise to Abraham, he, he made a covenant with him, and he had him lay these animal halves apart from one another, and Abraham's sleeping by the tree while the presence of God is passing through this, these animals making the covenant to Abraham. So God makes a covenant with him, and he seals it with the blood of his own son, Jesus. It's an unbreakable promise, as, as sure as God's character is true, so this promise will be fulfilled. What, what is the nature of that promise? Well, first, that he's going to grant forgiveness of sins. This is the second thing we want to see, that God grants forgiveness of sins to us. 
That's what he says. This is my covenant or the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many, for what? For the forgiveness of sins. See, this covenant is ensured by Jesus' blood. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness for you and I, so that as we trust in Jesus Christ, our sin is cast as far as east is from west, that we are no longer condemned in the presence of God, but we recognize God's goodness and his faithfulness toward us in Christ. So God gives us a covenant that's unbreakable. He promises us the pardon of our sins. And then thirdly, he promises us his eternal presence. This is what he says in verse 20. Now just take this at face value. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of its fruit of the vine, of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Someday, if we're in Christ, we will sit and dine with God. We will be with God for eternity. Isn't this a beautiful expression of God's faithfulness? This is just one of God's many promises to us, that he promises that he's giving us a covenant, that he's forgiving us our sins, that someday he will dine with us for all eternity. These are the promises we bank on right now. In the midst of all of this difficulty, all of this unsurety, these three things are sure. God promised himself, God forgives us for what we've done, and God promises that we'll be with him for eternity. This is what we bank on. This is what we hope for, right? In the midst of all of the difficulty that you face in your house right now, all of the, the qualms, all of the fears that you might face, face personally, or, or the fears and qualms of your children or the fears and qualms of your neighbors or your extended relatives or whoever else it might be, we have God's precious promises given to us that right now we can trust God's heart. We might not be able to trace his hand, but we can trust his heart. This is God's promise to us that we can expect forgiveness of sins. We can expect to delight in God's presence for eternity. I want to read in closing from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, before I pray and before we kind of shut down our, our feet here. 1 Peter says this, just as a good word to, to finish up with. His divine power has granted to us all things that to pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, God's given us his promises so that we might become, as the text says, partakers of the divine nature, that we might mingle with God. It's the blessing and beauty of the gospel. Let's not lose sight of the gospel in the midst of our, our trial and our frustration, but let's hope deeply in the word of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, we're reminded today of how you saved your servant Noah, how through your faithfulness you remembered him, you remembered your promises, and now we recognize that you will someday remember your promises to us. Right now we ask, how long, Lord? How long will we suffer? How long will we groan underneath disease and difficulty? But we recognize that you will be faithful to your promises that you will eventually pull us into your presence for all eternity, that you will cast our sins as far as east is from west. We thank you for this. pray this in Jesus' name.
Hey, thanks for logging in with us here. We uh, will get you more updates about what's happening next weekend. Uh, yeah, anyway, have a great week. Stay healthy, stay smart, stay wise. God bless.